The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 201, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the oneouter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at oneouter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash oneouter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on oneouter.com website and also via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. One more sort of house note for this week. Someone did email me and said they couldn't find me on Twitter. Um, I think they were pressing like at oneouter.com as in a dot. So just again for people that can't, when I searched one outer, all one word, it was pretty easy to find. So if you try that, or it is at oneouter.com spelled out. So it's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M, and you'll find it there. Alex, episode 201, the march towards 300. We got a lot of good feedback and positive vibes from a lot of people saying, well done on the 200 episodes, etc. Uh, here's to the next 200 um, we'll see if we last that long. You know, things can happen in life, but <laughs> we're not going anywhere anytime soon. 201, how are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm uh, I'm a little beat up right now, but I'm good. Just not beat up in a bad way, just a lot of things going on. Uh, just got my books in. Uh, excuse me, my book is Out Exploitative Play and Live Poker. I just got my box of the first printed copy so i had that last night and i was reading that and that came out i also had a product to launch with uh jonathan little not a new product but a like a new webinar which i sent out to everybody i uh, was doing that last week i'm headed to a wedding in a couple days and yeah i just just got my ass off the bus from uh montreal so yeah lot going on but you know it's all good stuff it's just part of being a i guess a professional poker player in 2018 you have to be pretty multifaceted but yeah that's kind of what's going on okay um just i just took a spur of the moment there i wanted to do something for the 200th episode and we didn't do anything so alex has got a new book out um i'll be doing a giveaway myself in my own pocket for a copy of Alex's new book to a listener. Um, I'll probably give details in the next show. We'll do some sort of uh, follow me on Twitter and then at me at why you deserve to win the book. We'll keep it nice and easy. And then I'll make a selection and that'll be like my Christmas good spirit, good vibe giveaway of Alex's new book. So we'll we'll, we'll discuss that in episode 202. I'll come up with the, with the T's and C's because it'll be coming out of my pocket. 
Sounds great, man. That's very generous of you. And guys, just you know, Barry's running the whole show. So uh, don't don't send me emails if you don't get picked. Uh, I, I'm really good at not reading those. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll be me that has a look through and then decides and uh, we'll, we'll get a copy. Either is, I think it's on Kindle as well as a hard copy. So you can choose whether you want Kindle or hard copy, whatever your thing is out, and I'll get it. I'll get it to the winner. Sounds great. And guys, just in case you're curious about the book, I am very proud of it. I have a video that I'm going to put out on Twitter, uh, which where I discuss the book much more at length. But long story short, it is very much about how to get you winning as fast as possible. And we go over a number of sections in that book. I start with something you guys hear a lot about on this podcast, uh, population tendencies, my discussion of them. We also then go into how three betting should be looked at differently. I, I don't think many people write about three betting in the way I do. How opening should be looked out differently, differently. How four betting should be considered we discuss a lot of exploitative plays that I haven't seen in many other books, and some of them I haven't seen, period, that you can use post-flop. We discuss triple barrel bluffing a lot more. We discuss some of the bigger live plays that can be executed. Tournament theory. There's stuff about passive cash games. There's a lot of good stuff in this book. I think that DMB has also made it very affordable, which I really like. I'm not a big fan of I understand why people charge a lot of money for poker books, because quite frankly, any poker book that teaches you one trick, if that wins you one buy-in at 200 NL, the book is worth a hundred dollars, right? Because it just made yeah, you two hundred dollars. Yeah. And if it's gonna if it makes you one buy-in at 200 NL. It's going to make you 10 buy-ins if you keep playing. So I get why people price the books differently, but DMB and I, we price it very affordably. This one, the digital book is just 20 bucks on the site. It's 30 bucks, uh, 30 bucks for the physical copy. And if you read this book and you don't come away with hundreds of dollars worth of content, if not thousands, uh, I would be very surprised. So do check it out. Uh, follow me on Twitter <laughs> at the Assassinato, and you can see the links for that. But uh, yeah, Barry, you had something you were going to say? Yeah, that that was lucky. I jumped in saying I'm doing the giveaway for the book, and luckily it wasn't like let there be range. It's like, oh yeah, this one's three thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. this one, this one, this one's six k, and your first yeah. one. I think I might have just deleted this episode and restarted again. Me and Alex would have been doing in your recording. <laughs> <laughs> there wouldn't have been any giveaway. No, that's okay. That's fine for the listeners for a Christmas Christmas giveaway. Um, so, yeah, I read a little bit in one of your newsletters about the book, and you touched on that there's going to be a lot sort of less charts and sort of work like that that you did in Myth of Poker Talent. So this one, without sort of um, calling it officially that, it's more of sort of distilled, like, really effective, efficient, condensed, how to get, like you say, how to get your winning, almost if Tim Ferriss did a four-hour poker player book or something. That's a good way to put it. 
I sorry, I was uh, toggling with the microphone switch there for a second and couldn't get it on. I, I didn't take five seconds to think of that inspiring comment. But yes, that's a very good way to put it, which is in the myth of poker talent, I wrote that book because I felt I had to. When I was teaching people, it was amazing to me that Cardrunners EV and Flobzilla could do these equity analyses that I had to do by pen and paper back in 2007. It took forever. The reason Let There Be Range was $7,000 or whatever it was when it first came out was because it was so difficult to do range calculations back then. And those guys had figured out some remedial combinatorics that actually were crushing at the time just because poker education was where it was. Also, due to the great talent of the players that were focusing on them, you combine that with analytics, you're going to have a real issue. And sure enough, when we read that book, we all found it breathtaking. But thankfully, due to advances in the field, things like Flopzilla, Cardrunners EV came out. And I, in my lessons, at the end of all my lessons, I would teach people and then I go, okay, remember that Cardrunners EV, that Flopzilla calc we did, I want you to try to do your own. The problem being those range calculators are very cumbersome at the beginning and many people don't have a ton of time to study poker. They have wives, they have kids, they have a day job. So what it was unfair of me to expect people to be able to read the myth of poker talent. I stand by the myth of poker talent. I'm very proud of how part-time poker said this is the best poker book I've ever read. If you want to learn how to study poker, it's I'm very proud of the book. I think you'll have a great deal of information from it. But exploitative play in live poker is very much, look, if you're playing one, two, no limit, if you're playing a tournament up to a couple grand, this is how you're going to take advantage of people. And it's very direct. I'm not going to say it's super intuitive because there's a lot of concepts in that book, in this new book, that I haven't really seen in another poker book. It was also just a ton of content to cut down for one book. So it comes at you really fast in the book. But I think if you sit there and read it a couple times, and I do my best to put it in normal English, I, I think there's a propensity, perpetually you'll hear professional poker players when they speak they want to be seen as the smartest guy in the room so there's a lot of i don't know what you would call it over complicating of the matters at hand i also think they're trying to tell you everything they think about poker i would not I don't try to tell you in this new book everything I think about poker because I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. No, what I really want for you to have is the information that will help you win at the games you're playing. Game Theory Optimal Poker has done a lot for many great players. However, I just don't think it's going to really help you if you're playing in Laughlin, Nevada, if you're playing in Pendleton, Oregon, if you're playing in Baltimore. If you're playing a small cash game outside of Riga, Latvia, I don't think, I think if you're playing like a guy that is really focused on his pinky ring and what kind of cigar he's pretend smoking, 
at the table. I don't really think that guy's balancing against you. And I come up with some ideas for like, this is how I think general poker players play. I've surveyed hundreds, thousands of live poker players. I've looked at what live databases are available that I could get through my friends. I've also looked at online databases just to see if people play the same way when they're online. And you just see the same things come up again and again and again. And if you create strategies that seek to exploit the generic no limit hold'em player, when I have tested these strategies with my students, I've said, try this, let me know how it works. The reviews are glowing nine times out of 10. So I want you guys to have it. I'm really happy it's in book form. I'm really happy for this book to be out. And I think you guys will really enjoy it. And this is the most affordable piece of poker training I have. It's not like I just did a uh, webinar with Jonathan Little. It was called The Five Ways You Destroy Your Tournament Results. Uh, I'm going to give Barry the link to that so you guys can check that out. Uh, It'll be in the liner notes of this episode. But if you check out my normal info products, they're $100, $400, stuff like this. This is... 30 bucks and you get a lot of stuff that's going to help you kick some ass at the card table. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Yeah, it sounds good. And I'll grab a copy for myself. Um, have a little have a little read before I go to my Vegas trip next year again. See if I can see if the book can pay for itself. See if I can make $31. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think you'll be able to. Yeah. All right. Um, we decided that we're going to try and batter through some questions in this episode. So without further ado, uh, let's get into the questions. So this one is from Elvis with a J, E-L-V-I-J-S. So I hope I'm saying your name uh, correctly. Uh, he's from Riga, Latvia, and I have been there. It's a fantastic city. And he says, hey, Alex, thanks for all the stuff you do for players. I really appreciate it. I'm a spin-and-go player myself, and lately I have experienced problems with my heads-up play versus regulars. How can I improve this part of my game? Which coaching videos should you advise? Thanks in advance. You are the best. Hey, thank you, Elvis, for your question. By the way, guys, let's, uh, in honor of the 200 episodes, let's do a challenge today and see how many questions we can get through. Barry, do you have a bunch of questions ready? Uh, I've got that one, and then I have another one, two, three, four, but then I think there's a couple within a couple there. So yeah, I think okay. we've got plenty for an hour show, yeah. Okay, let's try to get through it. Let's see how many of these we can do. Uh, the the best book on heads up sit and goes I've ever read was, I believe the guy's name was Mercenary. If you want to read, uh, let me see if I can just fi- find him. Yeah, Heads Up Sit and Go presents the free Mercenary Heads Up Poker ebook. So it's still on Heads Up Sit and Go. Uh, if that's the book I'm thinking of, that's one of the better books I've read. I'd really. Uh, I'd really recommend looking that up if you want to get better at this. The other thing about heads up is you got to recognize you're pushing very small edges. We're talking like if you're a great heads up player in Sydney goes, you're going to win 55, 60% of the time. So 
many guys go in the heads up thinking I'm so much better than this guy. I should be able to close this out. But that's not true. If the guy just moves all in over and over again, he's still going to win at least four times out of 10. And you will have runs where for 20 days, it seems like that four day, four times out of 10 becomes 10 times out of 10. And it takes a long time to get used to that. I, it really was about 10 years before variants just started rolling off my back in No Limit Hold'em because I don't believe the human mind is put together for that kind of thing. I, I think when we lose money, actually they've proven this, there's a neurological component. When we lose money, more chemicals flood our mind than dopamine hits our brain when things go well. So a lot of what I think you're dealing with is just very normal chemical reactions, which is, I think you're probably beating yourself up too much. If you're the person I think you are is writing in, you're a fine enough poker player that my guess is this is just variance. The things I tell every one of my students, first of all, if you can't play heads up poker, I don't know if you should be playing tournaments. Because you think about the biggest payout jump from in tournament poker. There's two huge payout jumps. That's from no money to a cash and from second to first place. you got to go through those two gates as much as humanly possible when it comes to no limit hold'em tournaments. And I, I played cash for a number of years. I, I really enjoyed it. Six, month, six max cash. I never really got above 2-4, but I still had a blast. And it's good money once you get good at 200 NL. But heads-up poker, that is an art form. And I can never say I got a handle on that. I never grinded that for a living. But I would really recommend just playing some heads-up cash at some stakes you can afford and find people that are taking it seriously. It won't be that hard. And have fun with it. Just learn from it. Don't be scared of it. Many guys get heads up and they get almost this, cat, almost this catatonic response of, oh, God, what's going to happen now? I think you just got to look at it as, OK, this is going to be fun. One of the simple fixes I tell a lot of my students to do is just play your big pots in position. If you can do that, you're going to win more heads up than you want to. So something I'll do is I'll just 3x from the button as opposed to 2x, because if people are going to call me anyway, if you think about it, if I started a tournament, I said, okay, we're going to play 1530 whenever you're in the big blind, but uh, 510 whenever I'm in the big blind, uh, you probably wouldn't be too happy about that. But you can get people to consent to those terms because many guys have never folded their big blind in their life. And I'll, I'll just start playing with to see what they'll call without a position. And oddly, Many times it seems like they're more careful post-flop if they call 3.5x or 3.2x or 3x, which is preposterous because if you're going to call that much out of position, you do have to have some other game plans. You have to check raise on the flop. Uh, you, you have to three bet more. But if their strategy is just to keep calling and playing fit or fold out of position, I'll just keep making them play that out of position. Now, what, if they're going to consent to that, I'm going to be very careful about what I play out of position. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not playing. It just means if I'm going to flat out of position, 
if they make a big raise, I'm not as likely to call. If they make small raises, I will call with the intention to check raise really often. And I will do it with the intention of having more going on. I've also worked really hard on my three betting out of position game. If the stacks are like 40, 50 X, I don't know how they're going to be in these sit and goes that you're discussing. But if you are going to play tournaments beyond this, the spin and goes, you're going to need to learn how to play 40 and 50 X. And the big thing to realize in three bet pots, people don't bluff nearly as much as they should. So a lot of times, if you see a flop in turn bet or a flop in river bet, that tends to be the hand in three bet pots, which can help you be a bit more of an arbiter of what's a good hand and what's not a good hand in three bet pots. You can also, if you three bet out of position and you use a slightly bigger C bet, like say 60% of the pot, even if you're doing that on a board such as three, four, six, where it should be fairly obvious you're trying to get the guy to fold his high cards, most people aren't going to care. They're just going to see if you 3.5x three bet preflop and then just see that 60, 70% of the flop, nine guys out of 10 are just going to have this gut reaction of, oh God, the last few times I've seen that, that's been a dumbass with queens. I think I'm going to run there. And most people play poker to have fun. So it justifiably doesn't feel that good to play against what you think is a big pair and be wrong. It feels better just to fold and quote, wait for a better spot. And you'll see a lot of guys do that. What ends up happening usually is uh, I, I become much more choice with my three bets. Uh, I, I do check raise a little bit. And then the guy never really feels good about opening my big blind, but he'll feel fine about calling out a position. So what ends up happening is he backs off a little bit on opening the button but he really is into just seeing flops out of the big blind. And if you can get there, that's about as good as you're going to get most of the time. Because then the guy's playing defense. He's got to hit flops and he's not going to do it. Then you'll get your 5%, 10% more of wins than you would get if you were just playing fit or fold or very generic heads up. But if you want to get better at heads up, the best way to do that is to play a lot of like penny ante heads up, like $10 no limit. Have fun with it. A lot of people forget to have fun with poker. I played a lot of heads up. I just loved back in Costa Rica. I used to drink a lot of coffee and just play heads up. I just loved playing heads up poker. Uh, I can't, I didn't make money. Well, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, it was probably around like break even. I, I wouldn't be surprised if I was a small loser or a small winner, but I would have to like go through every record. But I just loved it because I, I learned quite a bit about heads up and you can you can move down to where you'll make money if you just bum hunt if you spend a lot of time on it you can move up to where you're going to learn don't expect to make money from it but i think that's a great way to help you in the games you're playing and obviously with the rejam charts if you're working with like 20 30x get those rejam charts and get just print them out and put them next to your pc and then if people are not going to be able to exploit you, that's the be-all, end-all. Okay. Um, you did go a little bit fuzzy there, but I heard you, Alex. We got you. It was just in case your connection was uh, struggling or something there. Sorry about that. Not sure what that was. Yeah, uh, it, was, it, was literally, it was literally a second just at the end there, so um, it's fine. 
I was uh, away from these New York trains that were trying to run over me, and uh, the signal got bad. But yeah, anyway, let's go ahead. All right, let's go on to the next question then. While the while the going's good and you're not squashed by a train, um, this one is from Paul. Question for you. I like what you share with us, value light. But what about our check-in range? If we are betting with top pair weak kicker, second pair good kicker, etc., our check-in range will be too weak. I understand a lot of fish might not exploit us, but there are other players in the table. They can see that I am opening myself to get attacked by them. So don't play that way versus those players. There, there's a lot of uh, I, I, I uh, that came out far more condescending than I meant it to. Sorry about that, but uh, I, I was just thinking, why would you play that way versus those players? Then you, you guys know when you play at the Paul, you know it's your card room. Who knows what's up and who doesn't know what's up, right? Now the GTO stuff. I don't harp on as much because, quite frankly, I think there's better teachers of that. I think Jonathan Little is extremely good at teaching the GTO counterpunch things. Uh, I think I'm much more suited to teaching you guys the exploitative stuff. And I, I do believe there needs to be more of that in the marketplace for teaching. So... Your question then comes to balance, which is, hey, if I'm value betting these small pairs, if I'm value betting a second pair, uh, if I'm even going for some value bets with third pair when I'm in position just betting the flop and betting the turn so I don't cap my range, aren't people going to realize that my capping range, uh, excuse me, that my checking range is very capped at just high cards and whatnot? Yeah, people will recognize that. Uh, There are also... There also comes to the question, though, of who exactly is going to take advantage of that. There's many guys that might realize, hey, his checking range is crap. But there's a, there's a lot of possibilities that can happen on a flop. So let's take a situation where that would happen, right? So let's say we'll take the most simple situation of all, which is you open the button in the big blind calls. Now let's take a case where the big blind knows that your checking range is just garbage, okay? So let's ask ourselves how that's going to exploit, that is going to leave us exploited. So the flop comes out, there's some possibilities. One, you flop a pair better. Now, if you flop a pair better and you see bet, what they know is you will see bet good pairs and you will see bet better than a pair and you will see bet some bluffs. Most guys will not check raise versus that range because they're not really sure how that's going to work. Uh, they, they should check raise more, but you still see a lot of guys. I'm sure you see this all the time, Barry, when you're playing live. People still just love the call. They love to see what's coming up. So yeah. they, they call you, and they've pretty much told you because usually what they do raise is two pair or better and a couple bluffs, but not enough bluffs to make you really worry. What they usually do is they tell you, I called you and I got a pair. So you just look down at your hand and go, does my pair beat most of his pairs? And if the answer is yes, start trying to get money out of it. Uh, And obviously, if you have more than one pair, really try to get money out of it. If your pair doesn't beat most of his pairs, okay, maybe you put a little bet in on the turn 
because the average guy check raises like 6% of the time on the turn. And then on the river, when he checks you, you can feign like you're going to bat, but really you just bought the showdown. And then you check after like 20, 30 seconds. Uh, now let's say you miss the board. So, okay, we have the 50% of the time you hit the board covered, okay? So that's 50% of the situations. You're in a really good situation. Now let's say you miss the board. Well, that's going to be the other 50% of the time. Well, the majority of those times, the board is going to come a board you can bluff. Even if a board is, let's say the board's like king, queen, two, any board with two cards, nine or higher, generally is not a board you want to be bluffing versus the typical cold calling range. Let's say a guy cold called you. Let's say you open the hijack and the button flatted you. Rarely the button is calling you with more than nine, 12% of the hands. So what that means is, is a board with two cards, nine or higher, jack nine X, king, queen X, that's hit your opponent about 70, 75% of the time. So you do have to back off. But button versus big blind, and this should be your situation most of the time, is you're raising big enough to get the big blind just to call you. So hijack big blind, cut off big blind, button big blind. I, the next time you play live, I want you to pay attention to how many hands are one razor big blind call. One razor, one cold call, one big blind call, okay? And in the three-way pots, you're playing for value, and that's fine because there's a ton of money. And if you are if you raise big enough just to get the big blind call you, that's my favorite because now the guy's calling you 35% of the hands. And if that board comes that same like king, queen, two, jack, nine, two, he's still missing the majority of the time. So you can put a bet out there big enough to know that high cards are going to fold or in the case of king, queen, x, maybe just a moderate size bet will get ace highs to fold just because they think you're raising with more kings or queens. Whatever it is, usually people are not going to check call out of position with as many high cards if you just play with that c-bet a little bit. If you go to two-thirds, if you go to three-fourths, this is really safe to do on boards like eight, six, two, jack, five, eight, even. Just as long as there's not two cards, nine or higher, you're generally in pretty good shape to take that away. And people will usually give you the benefit of the doubt if you bet a little bigger, especially if you don't look like me, if you don't look like a 30-year-old white, 30 white male, uh, if you guys are in your 40s or 50s, or if you're a lady, or for whatever reason people just think you're a Tiger player, they're going to let you get away when they have high cards and they've just bricked the board. If I can get away with it, all of you guys can get away with it. So now we've just covered the 50% of the time that you hit the board, you have a pretty good game plan. And now we got like the 30, 35% of the time you whiff the board, but the board comes good enough for you to bluff. So that only leaves you about 15, 20% of the time. The board's not really good to bluff and you're checking back most likely with hands you give up. Well, I'd still like to point out that one, I'm teaching you how to make money from poker games that are a little softer. I don't want to get into my personal mission and political views too much, but I really do believe men need a way to make money from away from corporations, away from corrupt governments. And one of the finest ways to make money anywhere on earth is to play cards. Now, if you're looking for a game around the world or on the internet, most games are going to be fairly soft. So that tends to be, or not soft, but it's usually going to be guys playing their cards. It's going to be a lot of punters. Remember, 
statistically speaking, according to most gaming sites, 95% of people who play poker lose money at poker. So for us to assume they're thinking further, I think is projection. It goes, well, I'm thinking quite a bit about my game. I'm studying poker quite a bit. Therefore, this person's probably going to do it. But statistically speaking, 19 out of 20 of these guys lose money. What kind of guy sits down every day to fold for an hour to get his aces cracked when he loses? That that That's a guy, he's probably watching soccer. He's probably watching football. He's probably hanging out. He probably plays with money he can lose. But he's not taking it too seriously. He's playing his cards. This is the opportunity for you to make money anywhere on earth as long as you get an internet connection because if we look at the strategy we just applied yeah our checking range is very weak and likely let's say we even announced to him that our checking range is garbage that still means 8.5 times out of 10 we are applying a very good strategy that is profitable for us and if you filter in your databases for times you see bet uh just period with any two cards from button to big blind, you'll see you're making money with any two cards. And the majority of this time you're C-betting. And the reason for that is most people call with 35% of hands, 30% of hands from the big blind, and they fold when they miss. If you look at databases of any play, if you look at databases of any player pool in the world, what you're gonna find is they fold to flop C-bets about 48% of the time, 47% of the time. And that number obviously goes down when they're in position. It goes up when they're out of position. Now, it's really funny they use that number because if you look at a 35% flatting range, how often that hand flops a pair or a draw or better is about 52.5% of the time. So it looks like they're literally just folding every single time they don't have a pair or a draw, which is about 47.5% of the time. I'm curious about setting you up in that spot is it exploitable? Yes, but you can't exploit other people without, become explo- without becoming exploitable yourself. This is the fun part about poker is trying to outthink the other guy. And if the guy is just your average punter, which we know 19 out of 20 of these guys are because they're a losing player, I don't think you have to think too far to take advantage of them. Now, let's say the guy does know a few things. The second question is, is he going to do anything about it? When you play, I have played up to 25.50 in cash. I've played 5.10 online quite a bit. I never made money at it because when you play those guys, if you ever watch Phil Galfond playing high stakes cash, if you ever watch any of those guys playing high stakes cash, there's a lot of check raising. There's a ton of three betting. There's a lot of playing back at you. The guy might know that your checking range is full of it. But if he's not going to be three betting you pre-flop, if he's not going to be check raising you the 80% of the time you're C betting, it doesn't really matter if he knows when you check you give up because still eight times out of 10, you're taking advantage of him. And I think we always like to fetishize the idea that poker is this complicated game that takes so much effort to conquer and that's very true with high stakes but i think that's also a way of excusing us from grinding i think it it's also self-serving to believe poker is this very nuanced subtle game of mental chess because that justifies 
are exertions of effort that have not been met with results. When I think it's a much more painful realization to realize that most of our opponents are playing checkers and we're trying to apply this elaborate opening gambit that we read in a strategy book that is completely being lost on them and their reactions and the results are completely incomprehensible for us to predict. I hope that makes a bunch of sense. Okay, um, let's get straight into the next question. This one is from James. Now, it looks quite a long one, so we'll just see here if it's a couple of questions within one. So this one is, hi, Alex. I texted these questions last week, but thought I'd try email instead. Been working my way through thinking like a poker player. It's very helpful, but tough. I've had a couple of quick follow-up questions and was hoping you could clarify. When you're playing against shorter stacks, do you determine whether to raise 2x or 2.5x? In the videos, you raise 8-7 suited to 2x, but then ace-7 off to 2.5x, and I can't tell the difference. My other question is I am not clear when you recommend a c-bet of 75% and when 67%. Um, okay, so let us let me go back there, Alex, for yourself, because it looks like there's a few in here. So I'm going to go with this first one first. When you are playing against shorter stacks, how do you determine whether to raise 2x or 2.5x? In the videos, you raise 8-7 suited to 2x, but then a 7 off to 2.5x, and I can't tell the difference. First off, just forget the starting ends. Okay, let's simplify this. Every database I can find, every time I track results, every time I do equity calcs, you can almost open any two cards in late position. As long as nobody three bets you, you're generally going to make money. All right, that's not 100%, but that's something we should know. And that's just because people fold too much, right? Now, if somebody is able to three bet you and it's going to happen a decent percentage of the time, that becomes a real issue because then you're in a, it's like you're back in the big blind, right? And nobody... If I said, hey, let's play a heads up match and I'll put you in the big blind every single time and you're not allowed to re-raise me when I open, you would never take that option even if I gave you 8-6 suited or ace-10 off or whatever it was. And unfortunately, that's how many people see, well, four betting is not a terrific idea anyway because three bets tend to be pretty tight in range. And Obviously, flatting out a position is not a recipe for making money. You will be mitigating your losses at best. So the thing to focus on is, is anybody going to three bet me? Now, with shorter stacks, oftentimes the question then becomes, will anybody three bet bluff then fold? And if the guy has like 18x, 20x, a lot of times that's very unlikely. So you can get away with smaller opens, say 2x or 2.5x. Now, why would you go between 2.5x and 2x? Well, let's say you got a guy to your left who has 21x. You got to just visualize the three bet. Why would the guy three bet 2.5x? Well, if he's got 21x or 20x, that three bet's going to be in the area of like 6.5x. That's a little bit more than most people can stomach. But let's say he's got 21x and you make it 2x. Now 5x, maybe he can fathom that. So you're always trying to 
have a little bit of that predictive quality to your game and ask yourself who is capable of a three-bet bluff. Now, most of these guys are not capable of that three-bet bluff. If the guy's not under the age of 25 or he's not Swedish, it's not usually going to happen. So then the question becomes, uh, then the question becomes, if I raise just a little bit more, will that get everybody to fold? And the answer is no. Usually it's going to get the big blind to call you. So generally, you're just asking yourself, the, the great question, the most important thought before you open preflop is always, who is going to three bet me and what can I do to dissuade that? Now, if there's like three or four or five people that could three bet you, that's why opening from early position is such a mess when you do it with garbage hands, because even... Even if everybody at the table, let's say you opened under the gun, you know for a fact everybody at the table behind you is only playing jacks, queens, kings, aces, ace, king. That still means one third of the time someone has one of those hands. So you're going to run into a three bet one third of the time. And that's just due to how many combinations are behind you. Now, if you open from the low jack, high jack cutoff where people have intuitively begun to realize they can open much wider, especially if nobody's three betting them, that's much more likely to lead to an effective profit. So the question then becomes, can anybody three bet bluff if I open to this amount? If yes, okay, maybe can I adjust it a little bigger? If the answer is no, just go ahead with that small raise, especially with short sex like 18X, 17X that have to jam or fold and you know the people think that way. Okay, the next part of his question was, my other question is, I am not clear when you recommend a C-bet of 75% and when 67%. Finally, you said also recommend 4.5x and 2x for every limper. Did you mean 4.5x plus x instead because you later recommended a 6x raise over two limps, not 8.5x? Okay, answering those questions uh, very, very quickly, but hopefully effectively. Uh, first off, the two-thirds bet, three-fourths bet, those are just stuff to get you thinking. The average player, as we discussed earlier, has missed the board, no, no pair, no draw, when they call from the big blind like 47% of the time. So if you know for a fact you're folding out high cards, you can do two-thirds, which needs to work 40% of the time, or three-fourths, which needs to work 42.8% of the time. Either one will work, but... What you don't want to do, what I see a lot of guys do, is I'll bet one third pot because that's the new cool thing. Well, is ace high folding into that? Probably not. Are you following up with a double barrel? Sometimes. Nah, I, I don't like how this plan is going, okay? We need more clear-cut parameters. Same thing with half pot. Is he going to fold high cards? Well, I'm not really sure. However, there seems to be this gut check when you see a two-thirds or a three-fourths bet. And that's just why I want you guys thinking of that because it is called No Limit Hold'em for a reason. It is not called bet half pot and raise 2.5x preflop for a reason. They, there are, There is an art form to this game that you are allowed to use. And if you believe that people are just not understanding that that two-thirds pot size bet needs to be defended against six times out of 10, they're instead folding every time they fold, which means they're only playing back about 5.2 times out of 10, you have a profit margin. Uh, say, or, excuse me, I got those mixed up. Two-thirds or three-fourths. Same thing, right? It's, uh, but it's just something to get you going. The big, the big time you don't want to be doing it is when there's two cards nine or higher. 
that's much more likely to hit your opponent's range. And you don't want to be doing it against the bigger range. So if they call you from the big blind, that's fantastic. Okay? That, that's a lot of combinations that are going to brick. If a guy is in the habit of opening all of his jack-10 offsuit combos, that means he's opening 20% of the hands. You see him open jack-10 offsuit once from the low jack. That means low jack, high jack, cutoff button. He's opening 20% of the hands or more. If you corner 20% of the hands, as you will be able to do very easily if you're playing live poker, because he's going to open 20% of the hands, you're going to three-bet, and he's just going to call with everything because that's the new invoke thing. That... That is going to brick a lot of boards, especially any board that does not have two cards, nine or higher. If you raise and a guy cold calls you, that's about 12% of hands. That's actually going to hit a lot of boards. If you raise and a guy three bets you, that's about five to six percent of hands. That's going to hit a lot of boards. So you got to be careful of that. Uh, the other question, which was, I forgot the other question. What was it? The other one was... Um... Oh, the ISO raising. Okay, ISO. ISO. You recommend 4.5x plus 2x for every limper. Did you mean 4.5x plus x instead? Because you later recommend a 6x raise over two limps, not 8.5x. Oh, I get... Uh, my guess was there were some mitigating factors in that hand. I, re I remember that hand in the video. I, I'm actually... I didn't love that that hand was in there. But yeah, anywho... Uh, uh, or there was a mitigating factor because yeah, you're right. That is very confusing. Look, the big thing, and there's a one one of the things I've been talking about recently that has gone bananas for a lot of my students is how to play in passive games because a lot of people say this stuff, which is, hey, I don't know what to do in these games because people just limp call everything I put out there. And look, 4.5x plus 2x or 2.5x or whatever you want. That's a guideline. Here's the big thing. If people are limping in and you raise, let's take you playing one, two, okay? One, two, three people limp. Okay, so uh, under the gun plus one limps, MP limps, MP2 limps. You're on the cutoff with ace, ten of diamonds, okay? Everybody's very deep. Now, the standard raise people go to is like 12 or 24 bucks there. I would say go to 25 or 30. Because if everybody folds, you just made 10 bucks in eight seconds and who in this is passive games right so you know the guys are just limping everything if uh, an old timer limps for the first time in an hour under the gun you'd be very careful you just go ahead and limp behind but whatever amount is going to get one caller or everybody to fold is what you want because this was how i didn't know anything about poker when i was a kid and i couldn't figure out why i was making money the, the thing was I would only play good hands, and when I iso-raised, I was terrified of some, like three or four people calling me and running down me down. So I would raise really big amounts, and everybody would chortle and make fun of me. You know why they did that is they wanted to call me and bust my big pair, which is actually a pretty good idea if you, I only make it 14 bucks, right? And there's three or four of them calling. But if I made it 25 or 30, what would happen is everybody would just fold, and I do that like three or four times in a session and I, you know, maybe one other time I get a C bet through, it was like 50 or $60. And each one of those pots is five big blinds, right? Five big blinds is what the average, average, not great, average professional player makes in a hundred hands. It takes two and a half hours to play a hundred hands live. And when a guy called me, do you think that guy was good? 
one times out of ten, there'd be like a really good poker player who would like just limp his kings, wait for me to do that, and then call begrudgingly and just let me barrel my ass off. But usually it was the worst player at the table would finally get frustrated the third time I did it and then called. Then I had this huge pot in position with a superior hand versus the worst player at the table. I have to be the worst player on God's green earth to not make that profitable. And sure enough, while I was terrible at the game at that time, I still made consistent profits because of this. There's a section about this in my new book. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Okay. And he does have one final thing, Alex, and it is one general shoot. Sorry? Let's do it. Yeah, okay. Uh, One general issue I'm having is that many of your videos refer to player statistics to help make decisions. And as a live player, I don't have any of this information. How do you make these decisions live? Do you use broad categories like other coaches recommend, or do you try to track opponent stats while playing? I, uh, I'm glad you asked that. What I've done is I've surveyed thousands of live poker players, and I say, like, in this situation, what would you do? And I've kept the numbers. Uh, I was lucky enough to speak to a few people that have kept live da- databases, and I looked at their numbers. And you can also look at how people play online. It's not perfect, but generally the way people play online is closer to their online style than we would realize. And if all these numbers correlate, you can know some certain things. One is that if a guy check raises you at lower stakes, nine times out of 10, the guy's got it. That's a great example, right? Now, I would love to tell you, hey, if he walks into the card room this certain way, and if he's wearing a pop collar, and uh, he's got a gold bracelet, and he check raises you, it's more likely to be a bluff. But the truth is, every time I've tried to categorize a little bit more efficiently, and it, it just doesn't seem to work. Whereas if I go, look, this is what, broadly speaking, all poker players of all ages do. This is about all I know. By the way, there's a lot of, thing, a lot of things I've tried to find the data that I can't find. One is one was I was trying to figure out pot control moves, and the question was if you check on the flop, how often do people bet on the turn? Now, if you found out that number was always eighty percent, that would really incentivize checking for pot control. And if it was like twenty percent, and the guy led, you could you would say, okay, great, uh, he led, he has a hand. That would be a wonderful thing to have. Have I can't find data that shows any uniform play there. People are all over the map. What I can say is nine guys out of 10 do not check raise bluff. That is a big thing. So whenever I'm teaching you guys, those are things that I've correlated through multiple data sets. Those are things I have applied myself, plays I've applied myself. They are plays that my students who have paid me on the cutting edge of my research have applied themselves, have reported some success. Nothing makes my info products without all that vetting, if that makes sense. Now, would I love to know what Holden Manager could tell me at a live table? Say that this guy three years ago, three bet 17% of his hands. Yeah, I'd love to have that, but we don't have that. That's why I typically go with generic 
ideas of how homo sapiens play poker. And the this really became odd that this all played into the book. This comes up in the book a lot. Okay. Alex, I've got an hour on the call, but I've got six minutes left in terms of actual since we started the podcast. Um, do you want to squeeze one last question in or do you want to leave it? Let's do it for the fans. Okay. Right. This one is from Ben. Congrats on the book. Can't wait for it to hit my mailbox. If you have five minutes, well, we got six. Um, some things been bugging me in stat in my stats. Second barrel. Right now, my and then in parenthesis, very beginning database for six max online cash is about seventy percent. I have the inkling that it is too much based on the master poker in one class series, but not sure what would be a right target for me to work from to the to evaluate what double barrels I should stop doing as I'm probably losing money on those situations. Cheers, Ben. Hey, Ben. It's, it's hard to give you an exact number of where that should be because my own double barrel is 76% and my C-bet is 60%. Now, the reason I C-bet 60% is that's a very balanced range. Obviously, I kick it up, say, if the big blind calls me. But that means about one time out of three I bet with, with a hand. I bet one time out of three without a hand. And one-third of the time I check, sometimes with monsters, uh, sometimes with nothing. That's not the way I pros don't, is they cap their range too much. So they call me on nine of diamonds, five of diamonds, four of spades. They've pretty much told me I have a nine at best. There's a lot of cards for me there, a three, an eight, a diamond, a jack, a queen, a king, an ace, that I can fire two or three barrels on. Therefore, my turn double barrel, my triple barrel is very high. That might be appropriate for those games, but that might be suicidal in, Lewis, in low stakes games. That's why when you see me teaching, like I did with Jonathan Little's class, I was teaching the five ways you destroy your tournament results. And it was very much a... If you're playing open field tournaments, if you're playing like Venetian 235s, if you're playing like 550s, if you're playing HPTs, MSPTs, if you're playing uh, tournaments at, at a local United Kingdom casino, how are people going to play? And in that case, a lot of guys make their big decision on the flop. They overfold a little too much on the flop and they don't fold enough on the Turner River, which is... Once they get through that flop, that it's usually I got a pair and I'm pretty into it. Now, they'll fold their really bad pairs, like their third or fourth pairs on the turn, but they're usually riding that second pair top pair for turn and river a lot of the time. So one of the things I put in my video, the five ways you're destroying your tournament results, which is a free video that Barry is going to link to in the liner notes, is I said, really just don't go after it unless you have a good reason you believe one pair is going to fold so a great example of that would be let's say the board comes eight six five you see that the guy calls he calls you out of the big blind you know he's got like 35 percent hands he calls you on the flop you're fairly certain he would have raised nine seven he would have raised the set he would have three bet tens jacks queens kings aces he's he's got like one pair right well if the turn comes a seven and he checks you that's a that's a board you can lean on a little bit because that's a very likely card that an eight's going to fold a six or a five is going to fold now, if the turns are two, I don't know if he's going to fold a five. And if the river's a three, 
or even like a king, I don't know if he's going to fold a five either. Because generally looking at it at low stakes games, mid stakes games, the average guy folds the turn like 28% of the time and the river like 20% of the time, something preposterous, just because humans are very bad at folding and consenting to a financial loss. So After that, most of the time you're walking the dog. You're trying to get money out of the guy. That that you look down at your hand when he caps his range. No, yet no, he has mostly pairs because people tend to raise their two pairs or better. Look down at your hand and go, does this beat most pairs? So if you need a hard and fast rule, like you know, the second best kicker with second pair or better, that's a great one to start with. Value bet that for three streets. Just get used to value betting. Uh, especially I see a lot of guys have like top pair second kicker and they check back the river. You see that a lot, right, Barry, when you play live? Yeah, yeah. It's funny, right? Because like the guy opens the button, the big line calls, and the guy calls you on the flop. And you know the guy's just calling with any pair. And on the turn, most of these guys, you know, I'll call to reevaluate the river, right? You still, you're very likely to make money on the river. Uh, if you just get very good at value betting, you will make much more money in poker tournaments than you deserve to. Because a lot of times people will just give away those chips at the beginning of a tournament like it's confetti. There's like 20, 30 big blinds uh, in middle, early stages like it's nothing when they're calling out of the big blinds. And like 20, 30 big blinds is like an extra life in tournament poker. And if you're playing cash, you get a couple of those pots. That's a win. That's your win rate for the day. That I, I hope that gives you some ideas as far as the turn barrel, my friend. Hopefully you're not in a game where you have to triple barrel bluff that much. That's very exciting. But if you got some time right now, the way to pad the old pocketbook is to play bums at lower stakes games and to play them a lot. Okay. And that is all we have time for this week. I think you did well there, Alex. You uh, battered through them, the questions. So we got a lot in that episode. Um, how can people get in touch with you for getting on the newsletter, mailing list, info of your new products coming out, etc.? Thank you guys for sending all your questions questions in today as well, guys. I really appreciate that. Uh, this was a really fun episode to do. If you guys want to sign up for my newsletter, go to pokerheadrush.com. That's my ancient blog site. Go to the top right and sign up for the newsletter, and the newsletter is very pretty. And the newsletter will come to you every day and it'll give you free training videos. It'll give you free articles, free podcasts. Literally, you will get free coaching every single day. So be sure to sign up for that. Follow me on Twitter at The Assassin Auto. If you guys want to see more long form discussions, if you're really into the long form, let's say you're into podcasts, right? Those long form two hour podcasts where they really get into a topic. I'm doing a lot of stuff like that right now for Tournament Poker Edge where I'm just going over hands and they let me talk as much as I want to talk about poker. And if that, if you really want to get your grind on with poker learning, check out some of those videos. And uh, yeah, check out the new book uh, at D&B Poker on Twitter. I'll be spamming you guys with links for that. And uh, yeah, check out America's Card Room where, who is keeping this uh, hoop-de-hoo on the road. Yeah, and uh, keep your questions coming in for Alex. Questions at oneouter.com on email 
or you can tweet them to me at oneouter.com. Until next week, thanks for listening. Cheers. Bye, my The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.